News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Asking a question of you this morning, and it's about the Cullen Inquiry, which is BC's public inquiry into money laundering. Has it been worth it? Are you glad we did it? Because the closing submissions are set to begin today. They'll probably last a couple of days. And then the commission's final report and recommendations are due December 15th. It continued on during the pandemic, even though it didn't get as much kind of attention paid to it as it did before the pandemic started. But what have we learned? What would have been the most important points, do you think, coming out of the Cullen Inquiry? Well, joining us now is Sam Cooper, Global News National Investigative Journalist. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. So here we go with the closing submissions. How many witnesses approximately have we heard from? Oh, in terms of the number of witnesses, uh, including academics from around the world, uh, I, I wouldn't even want to put a number on it. It's a lot, but we can say that uh, the witnesses with participants standing is over 10. So that includes the govern- government of Canada, uh, which would uh, speak for everyone from the RCMP, the Canadian Border Services, uh, D.C. government, of course. We've heard from a number of the casino companies at the very center of this organized crime scandal. And we've heard from some whistleblowers, such as uh, Fred Pinnock, the former RCMP officer that wanted to go right into those casinos and investigate and, and was blocked, and Ross Alderson, a uh, BC Lottery Corp's former anti-money laundering director that uh, blew the whistle. So uh, we will hear from uh, their lawyers in the next few days. And uh, really, I think it's going to lay out uh, what what each party wants uh, the commissioner to take away from this, of course. Right. I know. And you've been writing about this for years, Sam. And I know you've had, we've all had so many questions. Do you think we got a lot of answers? I've uh, I've been asked this question a lot, and Simi, trust me, I've read literally thousands of pages of records. Uh, I believe the case has been made beyond any doubt that there was willful blindness right up to the minister level in BC's government. Uh, people in charge of running these casinos so that they weren't overridden with crime turned a blind eye to dirty money that was known to be drug money. There are, there's an RCMP report that said, this is drug money coming into your casinos. Transnational crime has infiltrated. Beyond that, I was stunned. There's a report that I didn't know would come out in the inquiry that says a Burnaby city councillor is very close with upper-level management at Great Canadian Casino and is facilitating organized crime transactions for these big VIPs. So in a nutshell, this was known by the Lottery Corporation, BC's government, indeed Canada's government, FinTrack, that this was a huge organized crime scheme, hundreds of millions of dollars profit per year, all tied to this Vancouver model, which is wealthy travelers from China coming in and using drug cash in our economy. It was known everyone turned a blind eye. Not everyone, there were whistleblowers, but at the top level, the people that could make a difference turned a blind eye for revenue reasons. I believe that case has been made. Do do you think it was more, was it more extensive, Sam, than you even thought? Like when you've been reporting on it and information was leaked to you and then you hear about it during the Cullen Inquiry, did did anything even surprise you? Well, I, I had to do my investigative work and connect dots from various sources and estimate that billions of dollars have been laundered in BC's economy. I estimated about $2 billion in BC government casinos. And guess what? When I could finally see the records, I found that I was 
I was right and probably underestimated. Let me give you an example. 36 VIPs that were banned from BC casinos when the RCMP finally did this e-pirate investigation are tied to about $414 million in suspicious transactions in just five years. Oh my goodness. Remember, there were hundreds of these gamblers coming into Canada. So that adds up to billions. I'll give you one more data point that did shock me. I, I, I reported that it was believed fentanyl was very connected to some of these VIPs and loan sharks. The largest VIP in Vancouver casinos was a known loan shark and fentanyl precursor importer. According to CBSA investigations, this is in BC Lottery Corporation records, and yet he was the largest VIP at the time. And look, from 2009 onward, Reports are being escalated to high levels in BC's government. This is serious, egregious money laundering. It has to stop, and it never stopped. Do you think it has stopped now? Well, uh, there's one thing that, without any doubt, these bags of $20 bills from drug dealers, drug proceeds from uh, the downtown east side going into casinos, that has stopped. Look, you can still get a... 10,000, 20,000, maybe a little more of drug cash into casinos, but you cannot stagger in with a, with a hockey bag with up to a million dollars in drug cash. That has stopped clearly. But I would add, we can't lose this point. These very same transnational crime networks, and let me just say who they are. This again is in the reports we're going to hear uh, in the closing arguments. Mexican cartels, Colombian cartels, Chinese transnational gangs, Middle Eastern organized crime with connections to terrorist financing had taken over crime in British Columbia. It was known that they were operating, and uh, they are still operating. They're just not lugging cash into casinos. They've moved into other, more sophisticated ways of money laundering. But look, that fentanyl is still rushing into Canada. So has this been worth it then, I guess? You know, we were hoping to expose all this, I think, with the public inquiry, and people wanted to put an end to it. But have we not been aggressive enough, do you think? Well, it... uh, I believe that the case that there was a form of corruption at the highest levels in BC to turn a blind eye to this money laundering is proven. What Commissioner Cullen does with that fact uh, remains to be seen. I was very disappointed that some very serious direct corruption allegations, not turning a blind eye, but what look like, you know, traditional cash payments, bribery, I don't believe those were tested at all. And I think that's an omission on the, of the commission's part. But look, uh, this, all of this will be worth it if what a number of experts say, legal reforms that are needed in Canada take place, such as anti-racketeering laws like the RICO laws right. that Attorney General David Eby has asked Canada to install. They were successful in tackling very, very bad organized crime in the United States. And look, we could uh, add hundreds, thousands more RCMP officers, but if they don't have the league, the laws that allow them to tackle the highest levels of organized crime, nothing will change. I believe Commissioner Cullen could make that recommendation based on the evidence in front of him. So interesting. Sam, also the one the impression that I also got from all of this was that I think people really wanted to be able to confront the people who were in charge and ask, why did you let this happen? And I don't, we didn't really get an answer on that, did we? I, I, I agree with you totally. I think there, you know, there's an element of theater almost to 
to, yes, uh, to exactly. these public inquiries. Of course, there's a legal basis for it, but people, the public, they, they want to see our leaders who turned a blind eye, as the evidence shows, very uh, rigorously questioned. And I think I got the impression that a lot of people felt some of those upper-level former ministers, all the way up to our former premier, were able to squiggle out of some... Uh, of some uh, tough questions and didn't give good answers about why they turned a blind eye. I'm not, this is not my opinion. I believe the evidence showed they turned a blind eye. There's enough emails, meetings, etc. And yet, on the other hand, some of these whistleblowers seem to get a very rough ride. And yeah. I think that's left some viewers with a, a bit of a bitter taste. And I hope they, I hope their, uh, their, their expectations aren't, aren't let down when, when uh, the, the findings come back. Yeah, I would agree with you completely. That was my assessment, too. Sam, thank you so much for this this morning. Thanks, Cindy. Sam Cooper, Global News National Investigative Journalist, talking about the Cullen Inquiry into money laundering, which actually starts to wrap up today. They've got, they've got closing submissions going on, expected to last about three days. Final report coming December 5th. This is Mornings with Simi. Transportation Safety Board has released its report into what happened in Lytton during the wildfires this past summer. We know that a fire raged through that community, forced roughly 300 residents to evacuate their homes. Many of those homes ended up being destroyed. So the TSB has been investigating, and now they've put out the results of that investigation. But... We also know that some residents of Lytton are not happy about it. They say they're disappointed. They're disappointed because the report says there was no definitive connection between reports that train activity had sparked that massive wildfire. And residents say they still have more questions. So let's talk about the report. How was it conducted? Joining us now is James Carmichael, the Regional Senior Investigator for the Transportation Safety Board. James, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Simi. Can you give me an idea of how this report was conducted? What did you do? Um, we first uh, found out about the, uh, we knew about the fire, obviously, immediately. Um, but we found out through uh, other organizations, such as the RCMP and the BC Wildfire Services, that they had some concerns that it was possibly uh, a rail involvement in the fire. Um, so we reached out to, to the railways and, and asked, uh, asked them if they'd been performing any trackside work or any maintenance in the area. Um, you know, we, we, we did a, a little bit of due diligence to find out if there was anything that, that they had uh, maybe neglected to let us know about or, or report. And at that point, they, they had felt there was nothing there. Um, we did go to the site. Um, we had a look. We decided it was, you know, we had enough information that we should go have a look. And so we went to the site, um, we had, had a look around, took some pictures, uh, tried to determine if there was any, any correlation between rail operations and the fire. Um, at that time, uh, we did not. Uh, so we, we kept going. We looked into uh, the, the last train that had operated over that uh, section of track. Um, it had been gone to Vancouver and been offloaded. Um, so it was, it was secured in Burnaby. Went down and inspected that train, looking for any signs of, uh, you know, a hot bearing or, you know, built-up tread on the wheel wheel face, uh, some burnt brake heads, uh, any anything that could potentially cause a fire. Um, and, and again, we didn't find anything with that. Uh, we met with the BC Wildfire Services uh, origin investigator. Uh, went back to Lytton and met with him. Um, we had uh, we, we we walked around the site. He had uh, explained to me uh, a little bit more about how how they do their work as far as investigating fires. 
uh, we, we located some uh, some carbonous material uh, near the right of way. Um, so we did collect some samples, as, as did BC Wildfire Service, and I believe the RCMP as well. Um, we had them uh, looked at at our lab in Ottawa. Uh, we did some comparison samples with with that from a locomotive exhaust stack and some rail grinding equipment. Um, you know, we, we analyzed three. There was a, we found they had very little in common. Uh, you know, we reviewed some forward-facing videos from uh, from the train, the last train that went through. Um, when the train went through, there was no right. sign of any fire. Um, we followed up with some government, private sector satellite imaging services to see if you know we had they had uh, you know any satellite images uh, from that date. Um, again, there was you know uh, very nothing from them. Right. Um, one of the things that I know, uh, you know, we, we talked to uh, some some employees of CN that were uh, had been working uh, between Kamloops and Lytton and had watched that train go by the the suspect train, um, and they had uh, they they all reported that they had no nothing to report. Basically, um, the train went by, everything was fine. So they uh, didn't see anything. Now the employees and did you talk to anybody like on the ground in Lytton? I mean, these stories had to have come from somewhere, right? Yeah, we what we did is we didn't actually uh, directly interview anyone from from Lytton, but we did we did review um, interview witness statements uh, from other organizations, um, and, and there were several of them, and, and we did review them. There was lots of, uh, you know, everybody saw the smoke and, and the flames after they happened. But we, we, what we were looking for is to, to find something directly related, you know, something that fell off the train or something that came out of the right. train that would have started the fire. And you know, through the interviews that we did listen to, um, we did not get that. There was, you know, everybody saw what happened after. Right. And but we, we directly were looking for something that, you know, could could show could show that the, the you know something had fallen off the train or or something had happened and um you know we just didn't find that so then is there any case do we know what happened then all this investigation that you did can we figure out what did happen to start this fire well that's, that's very difficult to do and i know bc wildfire services and the rcp their, their investigations um they're carry they're, they're continuing with their investigations like the tsb we, we were looking like it's something directly resulting from a train, something falling off a train or, or something coming out of the smokestack or, or, you know, something directly involving the rail operations. We couldn't find that. But, I mean, the RCMP and the BC Wildfire Services, they're looking, um, you know, a little bit different angle for them. We, we look to find uh, cause-contributing factors. We don't look, we're not uh, assigning blame. Uh, we, we don't get involved in criminal or civil liabilities. Uh, so, like, we're looking only right. directly for something that happened from rail operations. Right. So, does that put an end then to the Transportation Safety Board's involvement in looking into this? Unless we could find, you know, unless some compelling evidence comes forward, um, you know, that could to directly relate railway operations to the fire. Um, and you know, I've heard things with eyewitnesses, but. The witnesses that we, the, the interviews that we listened to from from eyewitnesses, didn't actually see the fire initially start. Uh, you know, probably within minutes after they saw it, but not. You know, we we, we need something directly uh, that we can see that 
you know, that the railway, a, a piece of material right. or something from the train started that fire. Right. So then, James, I guess for now, then it remains with the RCMP and the BC Wildfire Service. That is correct. Well, listen, thank you very much for explaining it to us this morning. I appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you, Simi. That is James Carmichael. He's the Regional Senior Investigator for the Transportation Safety Board, explaining more about their report that they put out regarding the Lytton wildfire. And I understand that residents there say they're not happy with it, but James, he just explained it very, very well about why they came to the conclusion that there was no definitive connection between the train going through town and the wildfire starting that ended up devastating the town. What they need her, they didn't see anybody, they didn't come across any definitive connection, meaning nobody actually saw the sparks. Nobody actually saw something fall off the train and do this. They couldn't find anything that would explain it. So can the RCMP do that then? Can the next step is to find out, will any of the other investigations from the BC Wildfire Service or the RCMP be able to pinpoint the, the origin of this fire that devastated and continues to devastate the community of Lytton? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. These new restrictions announced yesterday by health officials are not for northern health per se. They are really for northeastern health in BC because the vaccination rates tell the story of what's going on. Places like Peace River North and South have fully vaccinated rates in the mid-50s. Kitimat, though, over on the other side, 85%. In the community of Smithers, 77% of people have received at least a first dose. 67% are fully vaccinated. Well, what's been going on there? And how is the news of the restrictions going over? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Gladys Etrell, who's the mayor of Smithers. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Good morning, and you're welcome. How has it been going? How's the news of the restrictions going over there? Well, it's almost a little bit too soon to tell. They came in effect last night and or, you know, at midnight. I did reach out to a few folks. And I think, um, you know, for many, it's not a surprise. For some, it's a relief. And of course, for others, it's going to be very, very troubling. So it's going to be a mixed bag, which is sort of reflected, you know, when you're talking about the vaccination rates, I think we can come to some conclusions. Some people are fully in, fully vaccinated. Some people are hesitant and some people are, you know, kind of drawing a line in the sand and refusing to be vaccinated. Yeah, Mayor Atchel, what's it been like for you to try to deal with all of this, all that mixed bag in your community? (laughs) Well, it's been kind of surprising, honestly. Um, You know, I think my view when this started is that people were, you know, when the pandemic started, because people were kind of doing all the things that were expected, you know, there was the bang of the pots and pans, like everybody was in. And then over time, it just seemed to change. Uh, Perhaps that's the same in other communities as well. And more recently, there are, you know, there are folks in the community who feel that the vaccine is not the right thing to do. We have, you know, those who are hesitant and those who are adamant, and it does put tension in community. There's no doubt about it. You know, it's hard on people. It's hard on relationships. It's hard on businesses when uh, folks come in and demand that they're able to do, you know, not wear masks and not really support the rules. So it's, it's difficult. Yeah. And now you've got more rules, right? As part of these new measures, mm-hmm. you've got proof of full immunization required for any activity inside or outside. How, how do you think that's going to go over? Will there be issues, do you think? 
Yeah, I imagine there's going to be issues because the folks that are, you know, the most um, adamant in their opposition to vaccines have been vocal, you know, and I would have to say that's not really a large group in the community, but it's, you know, it's a group that feels threatened and it makes them, you know, um, vocal and visible uh, to some extent. And it does put pressure on businesses who really, they just want to run their business. They've been under strain for a long time, have, you know, for the most part, been upholding all the protocols. And people just get tired, like there is a sense of weariness. You know, and I don't want to overstate it, because I think people are really, most people are really trying to do the right thing. But for those of us that have been doing everything that we can all the way along, people do get tired. And this extra anxiety in community puts attention, you know, it's, it's in yeah. families. So it's within family units. It's within friend groups. Um, you know, it's in the business community. So it puts an added tension where really it would be nice not to have that on top of everything else. It would be. How are you, are you doing things differently, though? Because you still have to have those conversations with people. I'm sure you would like to see your community not have to have these restrictions. How do you make that happen? I would love to see our community not to have these restrictions. You know, I think I'm I'm doing maybe what other people are doing. I'm urging people, sometimes one person at a time, uh, trying to understand what's preventing them from getting vaccinated, trying to refer folks to where good information can be received. Um, I, in terms of my own, what I'm doing, I mean, I am spending time still at town hall. I am spending some time downtown, but of course, my my um, activities are lessened as well. You know, I have the same restrictions. I have not seen friends in my house for a long time. Like, we're, I'm just doing the things that we're all being asked to do, and at the same time, trying to be available to folks downtown. You know, I did. Um, I've attempted an outreach as well with our faith community to see, you know, what can I do to help you? Um, faith of uh, worship services are going virtual again. That's going to be very hard on some of the congregants. So what can we do together in our community to stand shoulder to shoulder, to make it a bit easier on people, you know, to maybe give folks a place to call, a place to say what they're upset about, and how can we support each other just going forward, like one person at a time? We still have a ways to go with vaccine, and people in community are getting sick as well. You know, so that's also hard. It's hard to hear those stories about people getting sick, going to the hospital, being medevaced. Um, those are real, and that's very hard to witness as well, to see people that are, you know, just not, not able to be mm-hmm. healthy and their lives are altered. Well, sounds like there's some work to do there. Uh, we will check back in with you and see how it's going. But thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. That's Gladys Atrill, who's the mayor of Smithers. They've got some restrictions coming into place. They're part of that northeastern part of Northern Health that will have to have these new restrictions. Uh, however, you know, we're talking about pubs and nightclubs that can stay open, but only if they have food service. If they don't serve food, they are now going to have to be closed if they're just serving alcohol. Uh, restaurants can continue indoor dining. Proof of vaccination is required, but we know part of the problem in that area of the province is that their vaccination rates are lagging. So I guess enforcement, is that going to go along with it? How are you going to convince people to get vaccinated, to get a hold of what's happening there? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What's going on with this report to replace the Massey Tunnel? We know there's been a lot of controversy over bridge versus tunnel, NDP government cancelling the bridge that had been planned, replacing it with a tunnel. But then this report came out that was supposed to justify replacing it with a tunnel. 
But the problem with the report is that you can't really see anything in it. Everything is kind of blacked out. So we thought, well, let's talk to the person in charge here. Rob Fleming joins us now, BC's Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Good morning and thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. What is going on with these redacted documents? I mean, is all of that really necessary? This is standard. This is 99% of the document is not redacted. You can read uh, all the details that you would like to about the project. The only things that are redacted, and this is consistent with how government acts on uh, projects uh, throughout the decades, uh, are the commercially sensitive numbers. So there, there, there are some areas where, yes, you know, contingency and risk management funds that we believe are necessary to complete the project on time and on budget, those sorts of things. Uh, are redacted, but they will be released uh, once we have uh, gone out to tender, once we have a competitive bidding process. But it doesn't make any sense to sort of, you know, you don't play poker by laying your hand down on the table. You certainly don't win at it. And we have to go through a competitive negotiation and a competitive bidding process and we release the numbers after. And that's the way it's been on, for example, the Broadway subway project, the Patella Bridge replacement, the Evergreen Line. Uh, and uh, and that's to protect the taxpayer's interest and get the best price possible. Okay, so then what is the timeline for that? When can we see those numbers? Um, after we award uh, the contract. So, um, you know, as soon as, as soon as we go through a competitive procurement process, um, we're actually building some of the project right now. So we have a Steveston interchange. There's some, we've gone through the request for, quali- request for qual- qualification. We're uh, now um, getting proposals and we'll be making tenders there. So as portions of the project uh, are let out and started, we'll, uh, we'll release those numbers. What do you say to the criticism that it does feel like perhaps that the NDP government is kind of contorting itself to justify choosing this tunnel over the bridge that was originally pr- planned? Well, you know what? I, I think what we can be accused of is listening to the region's mayors and working with First Nations to land a project that the region wanted. Uh, that's, that's exactly what the last government did not do. Uh, Christy Clark came in and said 10-lane mega bridge, 2.8 kilometers long, dominating the skyline of an area of Metro Vancouver that's you know just a few feet above sea level. Um, that would be the only horizon and vista you'd see for miles, and it would dump traffic uh, onto a, a more, uh, create more congestion, dump traffic just down the road a little ways. And we said, look, we, we hear you, mayors and uh, Metro Vancouver uh, elected representatives. We, we created a task force. Uh, the task force led to the creation of the business case review that we released uh, this week. Uh, we made an announcement in, in August. We had the chiefs of the Musqueam and Sawasan with us. So we've worked really hard as a government to, um, to create a consensus about the type of project we want that will serve us well for the next uh, 75 to 100 years. Are you worried at all, though, about environmental approval? That can be tough for a tunnel. Um, Yes, although I think one thing that will benefit us uh, is that we did about five environmental reviews that were part of the business case. So a lot of the science and thinking around mitigation strategies uh, will uh, will be, uh, has already been done, Uh, will We'll have to configure the construction timelines, just as we're doing with the Patello Bridge around, uh, you know, the different fish windows that are given to us by Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So uh, those things can be managed. I'm, I'm confident of that. Uh, there, there are a lot of countries, too, that have expertise in tunnel building. Some of like the Netherlands, they work in strict right. European Union uh, environmental assessment regimes like ours. So what about, though, the timeline here with this thing? Because, you know, it's going to be a long time before this is built, and we already know that's a bottleneck situation. Why are we waiting so long? 
Well, we hope to be able to shave some time off. I mean, the, the next time I come on your show, I hope to be able to tell you the details of a federal contribution. I mean, that's a different approach that we have with, with the last government, too. We've insisted this is a nationally significant trade corridor. It's deserving of a significant federal contribution. Um, the Prime Minister has said that it's a, a priority for him to fund it. Uh, opposition parties all agreed with it uh, as well in the recent election that it should be a candidate for funding. So we'll have some milestones to report. We'll look to save as much time as we can to improve upon the timeline that we've issued. Um, and, uh, you know, but uh, uh, for sure, we can go through an extensive uh, 3.5-year environmental review, get construction going thereafter. We will actually go out to procurement during the environmental assessment, the latter stages of it, when the issues are known and identified, and get the project built as quickly as we can. So you feel the like... Other thing, yep. The other thing, too, is that I, I, know, I know the opposition will say, you know, we could have had a bridge built next year or what have you. Uh, what they never tell you is that uh, over the next, uh, you know, six, seven, eight years, uh, everyone using that bridge uh, could uh, look forward to the Liberals taking 15 to 20 grand out of their pockets. They were going to toll that bridge just like they did the Port Man. Uh, they were going to ding families for using it, workers to commute to and from work, uh, and, and just hammer people with a geographical tax of anyone who lives south of the Fraser has to pay and anyone who... Uh, lives north of Fraser doesn't right. have to pay and that, that policy made no sense we scrapped it well next time we talk to you then let's hope it's about a faster timeline we hope to have that happen uh, thank <laughs> you for your time this morning okay thank you Simi Rob Fleming uh, BC's Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure talking about the Massey Tunnel replacement project and how hopefully things will get sped up if you want to weigh in Simi at cknw.com this is Mornings with Simi so we do have a weather warning in effect, as if you didn't know by now, as if you haven't looked outside, something called an atmospheric river. And all I know about that phrase is it means that we are going to get rain dumped on us. Some wind too. So let's find out what is going on with our forecast. Joining us now is Armel Castellan, who's a meteorologist with Environment Canada. Thank you for joining us this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Now, we know that this time of year, sure, we get rain, but what is unusual or if is there anything unusual about this particular forecast? Yeah, it is a bit unusual. I mean, we're, we call it kind of two frontal waves, but as you said, an atmospheric river is one of those special times when over the Pacific, you end up having a big low pressure system over the northeast Gulf of Alaska, and then a big high pressure off of California. And in between, you get this sandwiched fire hose of moisture coming up from the subtropics. And it's, you know, it's not together that impressive, you know, when you look at the satellite image, but it's just aimed right at the south coast right now or the last few hours we've already seen you know upwards of 60 millimeters in port melon there in in Howe sound so it's already dumping pretty well and it's not moving it's just kind of oscillating right on vancouver island the sunshine coast the north shore mountains there uh, into the fraser valley and we're going to see yeah upwards of 75 even 100 millimeters and even more in the mountains so it's definitely a very solid kind of 48 hours a little bit of a lull mid-afternoon there uh into the evening but then right back in earnest this evening for overnight period into well into saturday you made that very visual with a fire hose of moisture aimed right at us <laughs> pretty much <laughs> and that is what is going on out there right now so is there going to be wind involved in this at all there's also wind. Yeah, you're not going to escape one of these systems without some wind. It's not the most windy setup. Uh, you know, when we think back to the Solstice Eve storm of 2018, uh, those are different type of storms. This is not going to be extreme. We're 
likely going to see, you know, breezy conditions up to 60 kilometers an hour over Georgia Strait and the Salish Sea there um, from the southeast. Uh, but, you know, it, it's not going to be the main event for sure. It's going to be how wet it is. We're, we're likely going to see, you know, like I said, for the total amounts, but also it's about right. the intensity uh, upwards of, you know, 10, maybe even 15 millimeters an hour for a, for a few hours there, particularly on Saturday morning. Now, Armel, I've also seen reports in the last couple of days about the potential for an, like a La Nina forming. Is that is our winter forecast changing at all? Yeah, it's so interesting because fall is already so hard to forecast more than any other season, yet we're already able to make statements about the winter. And the reason for that is there is one of these things called the teleconnection between the equatorial Pacific and the waters being below normal temperatures already now. And eventually come you know mid to late December, that is going to impact our weather here, we're likely to see a colder than normal uh, season. So that, you know, that pretty much spells out a, a better chance of seeing snow right down to sea level. Uh, like we don't always see every single winter, uh, you know, in Vancouver here on the island yeah. as well. So, yeah, it, the, the, the dice are, are loaded, I guess, at this point, And we'll have to kind of determine how how loaded they are as we get closer to December. So is that usually what happens, Armel, with something like a La Nina? Like, does it develop as we kind of get into the fall season? Does that make it harder to predict? Um, it, Yeah, you know, we were not necessarily seeing this in July. And then only in August and September, there was starting to see that hint of a La Nina developing. And then not all the models agree. So it's not going to be a slam dunk La Nina. It's going to be probably a weak La Nina. Uh, and it could also just edge right into the neutral category. So it's, it's not as conclusive as other winters when we've had, you know, 2016 is a great recent example where the El Nino, the opposite warmer side, was so strong that it rivaled and then broke the record of 1998, which was the last very, very strong event. In this case, it's there. It may have an impact, but it's not so strong that we're guaranteeing, you know, snow down to uh, delta latitudes and right. lasting for five weeks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so nothing extraordinary, but sounds like we're going to get some snow this winter. So with this moisture that we're seeing now, then, does that put us at about average for in terms of rainfall for this time of year? Or, or it seems like it's been pretty wet and rainy over the last month or so. It really has. Um, I would say you can kind of look at it from uh, a multi-month perspective and and then we are now kind of caught up. If you can imagine that March through to essentially August was almost devoid of any precipitation. So we had a lot of deficit, obviously, with the summer that we had. And then now we've caught up in, in, in quick order. I mean, we essentially had a November in September. And now we're in October and it feels like November again. So usually we're ramping up in October. So this yeah. isn't that uncommon. But, uh, you know, if the main event is still to come, November through kind of early February, then we have a, a pretty wet, you know, streak oh to boy. go. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it really but, sounds like it. Uh, what about yeah. this particular streak? How much longer? So when can we expect a break in this particular atmospheric river? Okay, so yeah, we're looking at uh, kind of today being wet kind of throughout the day and really the tapering off, I would say, closer to kind of the, the rush hour, maybe 
6, 7 p.m., uh, tapering off and then picking up again, you know, around that midnight period where things will really kind of uh, pick up in earnest. And then you, that's when we're going to see the really high intensity rain, you know, upwards of uh, 15 millimeters an hour there in the early, early morning hours, kind of like 4 to 8 a.m. kind of thing. Oh, boy. Okay. Lots. So much to look forward to. Armel, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Have a safe time out there. You too. That's Armel Castellan, who's the Environment Canada meteorologist, talking about this weather warning that we have in effect right now for Metro Vancouver, the Sunshine Coast, House Sound, Fraser Valley, Whistler, uh, pretty much most of Vancouver Island as well. The special weather statement is just, well, rain, atmospheric river is the phrase that they use. And yeah, that means a lot of rain. We'll keep you posted on how that's going out there, but give yourself some extra time going somewhere and just be careful out there. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, this next story is particularly near and dear to me right now. We are talking about the Vancouver Police Department's canine unit and their 2022 VPD dog calendar. Like, I'm sold already, right? But I'm thrilled to be able to talk about the work of the canine unit because my, oh, my dear, dear uncle, he was Staff Sergeant Tom Carroll, retired once the head of that unit. I grew up around many of those dogs. Now, he passed away last week, so I'm so glad that I can this morning kind of remember him and do some good at the same time by talking about this calendar today, because you should buy a copy of this. For more on that, we're joined now by Tanya Vissenton, who's the Vancouver Police Department's Media Relations Officer. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me, and I just want to start off by giving my condolences on the loss of your uncle. I know he was a pretty avid member here at the VPD. He was a, uh, did a lot of, um, or he was involved in a lot of different sections in our department. He really was. And you know what? I vividly remember the canine unit so well because I was just a kid and he always had those dogs home and they were just the greatest dogs in the world. <laughs> um, oh, for sure. Yeah. And the, the dogs, like you said, they do get to go home with their ca- handlers and uh, be a part of their family. So it's pretty, they're yeah. pretty special. Tell us about the work of the canine unit. Yeah, so um, I think our uh, police service dogs have been around since 1957. It's one of the oldest municipal police dog units in Canada. So these dogs um, and their handlers, they um, go to probably about 7,000 calls for service each year. And it's typically they go to crimes in progress or crimes that just happened, like break-ins or assaults and robberies. Uh, They're able to track and find evidence, drugs, firearms and explosives. So they're a pretty um, awesome tool that we can use. So and what's special, oh, sorry about that, what's special about these dogs is they, um, they can go from tracking suspects, catching bad guys, to then being a part of a kindergarten class within minutes. So they're, they're pretty unique that exactly, way. Exactly, right? These dogs mm-hmm. are so amazing. What's the training process like for these dogs? So they have uh, pretty stringent training. I do know that. Um, as for the, the details of the training, I can't, uh, I'm not... Um, I'm not an expert on that, but I do know that it's very stringent training, takes uh, weeks at a time, and and we get them as uh, little puppies. Yeah, I know. They're so cute, too, at that age. So tell me about the calendar, then. Why do the calendar? Yeah, so the calendar has been around since 2010, um, and essentially the the proceeds of each calendar goes, or it's split between the BC Cancer Foundation and the BC Children's Hospital. And it all started... um, Back, like I said, in 2010, when a, a retired VPD sergeant, his name was Mike Anfield, he um, had a wife who uh, died with, from breast cancer in 2004. So he created the idea of having this calendar to, to raise money for, for BC cancer. So each year they're $15. This year um, 
They feature 16 dogs in our canine unit and at different landmarks throughout the city. And you can get them online at our website, or sorry, not our website, it's the um, Vancouver Police Foundation website. Or you can get it at one of our front counters at our 2120 Canby Street location or 3585 Gravely Street or in and around the city at any one of our Vancouver community policing centres. Well, I love the idea of just having a calendar that has great pictures of dogs, but these pictures are so adorable, Tanya. What, is, oh, yeah, what does I it know. take to get these pictures? Like, do all oh. the dogs make it into the calendar? <laughs> I, I do believe all 16 are in them, and, and um, our, um, we do have members in our canine unit that work with, uh, you know, pretty uh, awesome and talented photographers that were able to capture these ones. I, I, I think my favorite is the one where he's at the peony and the roller coaster, and that's pretty cool. Okay, that's adorable. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like, though, for 10 years, I mean, the money's obviously been going to a great, uh, great cause, BC Cancer Foundation and the BC Children's Hospital Foundation. Are, are these calendars pretty popular? Oh, yeah, uh, very popular. We've raised over $450,000 since 2010. So very popular. It goes to a great cause. Um, I, I, you know, it's it's awful that cancer has now become like the common cold. It's just that's what it is. It seems like it's everywhere, and that's that's awful. And that's why we need to keep raising money so we can um, eventually live in in a, a time where that doesn't exist. That would be so great. Okay, mm-hmm. so is there like are there endless copies of this calendar? Does it sell out? So should we get ours right away? Yes, they will sell out. So get online, Vancouver Police Foundation, come to any one of our police stations or hit up your local community policing centre and get your calendar. I'm just looking at the pictures now. They look great. All right, Tanya, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Thank you. That's Tanya Visitin, who's the Vancouver Police Department's Media Relations Officer, talking about the 2022 dog calendar. It's the Vancouver Police Dog Calendar. It's adorable. And I'm not like, I'm not even exaggerating when I say that. If you love pictures of dogs, these are adorable. So these are all 16 of the canine units dogs in different places around landmarks in the city of Vancouver. There's one at the PE, as Tanya mentioned too. I'm looking at the one right now in front of Canada Place. They're adorable. And the calendar is produced by the canine unit. All the money raised goes to the BC Cancer Foundation and the BC Children's Hospital Foundation. So check it out. You can go online to the Vancouver Police Foundation store.com or as Tanya Vincent pointed out, just step into the VPD, any VPD office, community policing office, and you can check it out, get more information there. It's $15, goes to a great cause, and it is adorable.